0: Take your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse number 23. Is kind of where we'll pick up this week. Now, if, if this is your first service out of the last three weeks on Sunday night, or if uh, you missed one, you might be a little confused as to where we pick up. But uh, the last three weeks, we've talked about uh, pictures that the prophet Jeremiah used to describe the current picture of the nation of Israel. There's no doubt at this point in Jeremiah's writing, based upon the language that he uses, Israel is idolatrous, they are backslidden, and they are very far from any kind of relationship that God would desire to have with them. And now we find ourselves, as Jeremiah is preaching the sermon, that, I might remind you in chapter number 1, is a sermon given by God to him. And Jeremiah many times has said, the Lord said, but that's the way it works. When God's man gets a sermon directly from God, he has the authority to say, the Lord said unto you. And Jeremiah looks at the nation of Israel, and he is a, a, a his sermons are beautiful in the way that he uses pictures to describe the current state of what's going on. And so far, we'll quickly go through, by way of review, Jeremiah used in verse number 2, The picture of an unfaithful bride. We won't take time to uh, give you the reasons why he uses these, but in verse number 2, he uses the picture of an unfaithful bride. In verse number 5 and 6, he uses the picture of a forgetful wanderer as someone who's walking... Uh, trying to find, but not looking for God. They had forgotten what God had brought them through. They were forgetful wanderers. He uses in verse number 13, the picture, probably the most uh, famous picture of this passage. He uses the picture of a broken cistern. And he says, My people have hewed them out cisterns, but they've forsaken me, the fountains of living water. And he said, I have everything they need, and yet they've sought other resources to satisfy their needs. Uh, verse number 14, he uses the picture of a disloyal servant. And he talks about, he says in verse 14, Is Israel a servant? Is he a homeborn slave? Why is he spoiled? Now, don't mistake that uh, language there. Being a servant, specifically a homeborn servant, was a real privilege, and, uh, and Israel was not in bondage to their master, but rather the, ma- the master provided great care for a homeborn servant. And God says, this is the relationship I desired to have with you, one where you obeyed me and I took care of you. But he says, why is Israel spoiled? Why have they gone away from the relationship I desired? Number five, he uses the re- uh, picture of a stubborn animal. And I believe there's probably some people in this room tonight, and I believe I could say sometimes God would might use that picture for me, a stubborn animal. Verse number 20 that's found in. Verse number 21, he uses the picture of a degenerate vine. And the degenerate vine in verse 21 says, "Yet I had planted thee a noble vine." And that's what God wanted, a noble vine, a good seed in good soil, with great care from God. Holy right seed, verse number 21 says, How then art thou turned into a degenerate plant, God asks. I gave you the foundation, I gave you the resources, I gave you my care, my love, my everything, and you have turned against me. Uh, Jeremiah goes on and uses, uh, and this is number 7, this is as far as we've gotten so far, a defiled body in verse number 22 And uh, uh, Israel was seeking their own ways to cleanse themselves, to rid themselves of the guilt that upon every tree or every high mountain and under every tree, there was an idol. There was was an altar. And they were trying to rid themselves of this guilt. And so they got the best bottle of soap they could find and they did everything that they could to cleanse the outward. But God says, that's not going to cut it. So last week we spoke on what true repentance is. Remember, repentance is not feeling bad. Repentance is not just hating yourself because of what you've done. Repentance is looking to God with a broken spirit, feeling morally miserable for what you've done, looking to Him and saying, God, forgive me. Recognizing the error in your ways. But the Bible tells us that repentance only comes when you not only confess, but when you forsake. Uh, you, you can't just continue in the sin. That's not repentance. Repentance is confessing and forsaking. But when these steps are applied to the Christian's life and this act of repentance, you know what the Christian has? Confidence. Confidence in what? Confidence that when God says you're forgiven, he'll keep his promise so that's what we've talked about so far. For sake of time, and because I didn't have time to study any more than this, we'll look at two pictures this week, okay? Two pictures this week. There are 11 total, so that means we'll have two next week. Verse number 23, I want you to see this. The Bible says, how canst thou say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley, know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways. A wild ass used to, the, uh, used to the wilderness. That snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. In her occasion who can turn her away? All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month they shall find her. Withhold thy foot from being unshod and thy throat from thirst. But thou saidst, there is no hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, saying to stock, Thou art my father. And to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the same time of their trouble, they will say, Arise, save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Heavenly Father, please bless. In the few moments we have this evening, I ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've mentioned this story to you before, but there was this one time when I took the youth department to uh, Lancaster, California for a youth conference. This youth conference was at West Coast Baptist College, and we decided to go Interstate 20. And I believe it's there, uh, you meet in El Paso and you get on Interstate 10, I believe, and you kind of go the rest of the way on Interstate 10, if I'm not mistaken. Really, the direction just don't matter. All that you need to know is we drove through El Paso. And it was uh, uh, amazing, and I had traveled this road before, but it was amazing to see the reaction of some of the seniors and the juniors that had never been in this area of the country before. As you are on that road there in El Paso, you can look over into Mexico and see a country that just... ...is having a rough go at it. And on this side of the street... ...you can see a country that has been blessed beyond all measure. And I remember there was a girl in the back... ...I will not tell you her name... ...because many of you might know her... ...but she was a senior at the time. And and I remember looking back in the, the rearview mirror... ...and I began to see tears stream down her face. Because for the first time in her life... ...she saw a line in the sand... And God's clear blessing on one side. And for whatever reason, the lack thereof on the other. You know, I don't know when it happened in America's history. But there's been a a line drawn in the sand at some point. Where God spiritually was able to bless our country. Somewhere along the way, this line, I cannot trace to where it is. I don't know exactly what happened. But there is a clear indication... That spiritual blessing used to be prevalent in this country. And now, if you say the name of Jesus in the public schools, you'll get shut down. You could stand on that line in America's history and on one side you see God's goodness and a group of people wholly committed to follow after God. On this side of the line you see a group of people that are doing everything to snuff out this whole idea of God or the existence of a divine creator to whom we may all be accountable to this type of situation that Jeremiah finds himself in. One, one, uh, uh, on one side of the line in Israel's history, you see a God who used to lead them by pillar of fire and cloud by day. You used to see a God who was willing to part the Red Seas, and you were, willing to see a, you were able to see a people who was willing to react to God when he told them they were wrong. And now God is clearly telling the children of Israel they're wrong, and they're snubbing their nose at him. And as God puts it, you have turned your back to me, not your face. So tonight we want to look at a couple pictures. First of all, in verse number 23, we'll see the first one an animal in the desert. An animal in the desert. Here's what I don't understand in verse 23, and, and frankly, God could not understand it either because he asked the children of Israel, How canst thou say, I am not polluted? How can you look around at the circumstances that Israel finds themselves in? And how can you say there's nothing going on? Verse uh, 23. See, uh, I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways. A wild ass used to the wilderness. You see, God compares them here to an animal in the wilderness... Now we don't often use this term in modern day uh, English, but a dromedary was a single humped camel used for the purpose of racing. As strange as that might sound, that's exactly what the dictionary even in our modern culture defines the dromedary as. And God says, uh, you're like a swift one trying to flee away from me going your own way. He says in verse 24, you're like a wild ass uh, uh, used to the wilderness. Almost painting the idea of one day being domesticated only to break out of its uh, confinements to go experience uh, freedom and pleasure. Here we find Jeremiah looking at the children of Israel and saying, How are you in denial at all that you no longer have the relationship that you once had with God? can you say, based upon everything going on in our nation, how can you say that you're okay? When you just, if you were to bring a stranger into our land and they see all the different idols and they see all the different groves, how could you look around and see that we are not what we used to be? You know what this tells me though? That a country can get so far away from God and yet they would not realize it. That even here in America, the chance to say one nation under God be written on our money and seeing a God bless America at every seventh inning of every baseball game. And yet we be guilty of the same thing, looking around and not being able to tell really if we are not as close to God as we once were. I want you to notice first of all, in comparison to this animal in the desert, they had been lied to by their disillusionment. Verse 23, how canst thou say I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. Notice this, see thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Now when we're reading Old Testament scripture, I'll just have to be honest. Many times I read over segments of scripture just like this, paying no extra attention to it. But as I began to study this passage, I realized, see thy way in the valley means a great deal. Because Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 32, take your Bible there if you will. Jeremiah chapter number 32, verse number 35. Jeremiah once again references the valley. Now, we as Christians hear the word valley and we think of bad times, we think of times in our life where maybe we were low and it's at those times we often desire to have God's presence with us. But when Jeremiah mentions the valley here, he is not referencing just a spiritually weak time in Israel's history. He is referencing probably the most embarrassing time in Israel's history, bar none. You say, well, what about the golden calf? I promise you, this one's worse. Verse 35 of Jeremiah chapter 32, the Bible says, And they built the high places of Baal. Now, it's nothing unique for us to see the children of Israel following after Baal. It's just, it seems odd to me that the children of Israel would go into a land with a bunch of Baal worshipers, defeat them by the mighty hand of God, only to turn to the weak gods that were not able to deliver their people from their own hand. But we find the children of Israel throughout the course of history looking to Baal. But this is the embarrassing part. Which are in the valley. You see that word there? The valley. It's the same place that Jeremiah references in Jeremiah 2. Well, what happened in the valley, Jeremiah? To cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Molech. Which I commanded them not... Neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. There's no doubt in my mind that God was very displeased with the day that the children of Israel asked Aaron to make a golden calf. And there are many times in Israel's history where things like this have to happen. But I believe probably it broke God's heart the most. When the children of Israel had so had gone so far from following God that they found themselves sacrificing their own children to false idols i can imagine what must have been going through jeremiah's mind and and what the don't do not miss what jeremiah is saying he says how do you say you've not come far how do you say that everything's okay in your land? How are you saying? How are you saying that everything's all right? Do you remember the valley? Yeah. Do you remember what took place? And I'll remind you that this is not the only time in Jeremiah that he references this exact same thing. It's like every time Jeremiah began to preach a sermon, it broke his heart more and more that there was ever a time in Israel's history where they had gotten so far from God that they could kill their own sons and their own daughters to please some idol that was no, not even there, to please some God that would never do anything for them. It broke Jeremiah's heart. And what broke it even more is they did not realize how far they were. They were disill- disillusioned. They, they did not even realize how far they had come. And may I suggest to you tonight, America is a little disillusioned. Amen. You, know you say, what does that mean, Brother Andrew? Well, we could probably go ask Samson what that means. Samson, the mighty man who God worked through, who God uh, gave his clear presence on his life. And, and and maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but there are very few Old Testament Christians, we'll call them, or children of God, who God's clear authority rested on at all times. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, but God's strength always re- resided with Samson. And yet we could find him, and just before... He gives the secret to where his great strength lies. I wonder if we would ask him if he's a little disillusioned. As he lays in the lap of his beautiful lover, Delilah, and he looks at her and she looks at him and she says, oh, Samson, tell me wherein thou great strength liest. I wonder if we could at that moment before he spills the beans, I wonder if we say, hey, Samson, you think you're in a little too deep? I would suppose his answer would be like, no, I got this. Everything's fine. No worries here. No problem. She loves me. I love her back. It's all going to be fine. I wonder if we could ask King David. As he stands on his balcony. You see going out to get some fresh air was not the problem. But you understand when King David did that. It was a time that kings customarily were not in their kingdom. And maybe just maybe the only reason that Delilah or Bathsheba was where she was is because she assumed her valiant king would be off to war. And yet we could ask David as he stands on that balcony, not where he should be, we could ask David, Hey David, do you think you've gotten a little complacent? You think maybe you're a little disillusioned about how faithful you are to God? And David would probably say, No, I've, I've got this. I'm fine. We could ask all sorts of people in God's holy word about if they were disillusioned. I guarantee you every single one of them would say, no, I'm fine. We could go ask David's son, Solomon. As he gathers to himself wife after wife, concubine after concubine, for his own pleasure... And at one point in his kingdom, he was so respected because of the great harmony in his kingdom. Of the great consistency with which those people under him served because his heart was pure before God. And I wonder as the very first wife ever came up to him and said, Hey Solomon, would it be okay if I just took a little piece of land and built a a temple for my God? Would it be okay, Solomon, if every day, I know you do your prayers to your God. If, would it be okay if every day that I did mine, I'll just go to a separate room. I won't bother you with them. I wonder if at that moment before Solomon gives his answer, do you think I could ask him, Hey, Solomon, do you think you're a little disillusioned? He'd say, No, everything's good. You know what disillusionment is? Listen to me. It is when we now accept things we used to not accept. You think you could have told David that one day he would leave his army without his presence? Listen, this is the guy who, who when he came to the war, as we learned this morning, we, he comes to war. What does his brother say? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. You have only come down to see the battle set in array. The only reason you're here, David, is you dream about being here and fighting with us. And now, just several years later, King David stands on his balcony as his, his army is off to war. Disillusionment is when we begin to accept things now that we would never think about accepting before. Samson, why do you think he gave her a lie several times? Because he would not accept the fact that he could share his secret with a Philistine woman. Oh, but just a few chapters later, we find him spilling the beans, opening all of his heart to this woman. He began to accept things he used to not even think about accepting. You think we might be a little disillusioned in America? You say, oh, no, there's no waiver there, Andrew. The children of Israel had no idea how far they had come. And Jeremiah pleaded with them, can't you see we're not what we used to be at all? I'll tell you one way America is disillusioned. We're disillusioned on the importance of the home. We're disillusioned about the role of the father in the home. Listen to me. You have to be present at home to be a role model in the home, men. You have to be there. If you're not occasionally telling your children goodnight, something's wrong. Something's wrong. If you get more FaceTime with your children on FaceTime, there may be a problem. And I ask you, how important is the promotion at that point? How important is your hobby when your children grow up to only uh, uh, hate you because you were never around? We're disillusioned. We're disillusioned on the importance of church and the family's life. We think of church as just a good activity to teach our children. We do not ever think about the life-changing power of the gospel and of the word of God every single time we go. And if we did, I would say, would not we go more often? Would not it become a bigger priority? Oh, what happened is we stopped. We started accepting things that we would have never accepted a long time ago. We find ourselves just as guilty as Solomon, just as guilty as David, and just as guilty as Samson. Oh no, I've got everything. Everything's fine. Oh, we'll just keep doing our thing. We'll just keep checking the marks off the schedule. We are disillusioned, Christian. And our nation is constantly taking strides away from God, and we sit back and say, oh, I'm sure God has a plan. You know, God's plan is for you to stand up for righteousness. We are disillusioned here in America. Not only had they been lied to by their disillusionment, they had been led away by their desires. Verse number 23, the, end, the, the last part, and uh, verse number 24, and I won't spend much time on this, given the subject matter, And the age groups in the room. But verse 23, the end says, Thou art a swift dromedary, traversing her ways, a wild ass used to the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure, and her occasion, who can turn her away? And they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month, they shall find her. The Bible picture here is of a dromedary or of a donkey who is in her season. And she is going about to fulfill her pleasures. She's not worried about who owns her or who she might have to answer to. She's not worried about the repercussions. It is in her nature to stray from everything and focus on her pleasures. What the picture of is in, the, uh, in Israel's life is their unbridled passion to follow after anybody and everybody they might be able to. To look for other gods in other places instead of staying true to the one true God of Israel. They were led away by their desires and passions. You think every once in a while we might get sidetracked Christian? With our desires and our passions. And occasionally they overwhelm maybe our passion and zeal for God. Maybe it's uh, that you want to be a good employee. Or maybe it's that you want to be a good coach for your kid's ball team. Those are not bad passions. In fact, I believe you can bring God glory in those pursuits. But may those pursuits never overwhelm our passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's exactly what had happened in Israel's history here. There was a a story told of the 1957 World Series between the New York Yankees and the Milwaukee Braves. The Milwaukee Braves star player was Hank Aaron, the greatest power hitter at that time. And New York Yankees had many great players, but one of their players, probably one of the most famous, certainly a recognizable name, was Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra happened to have a pretty big mouth on him. He was notorious for talking talking players up and chatting them up while they stood at home plate, for Yogi Berra was the catcher. One time, Hank Aaron came up to the plate, and uh, as was customary for uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Berra, that he would uh, try to distract the player. And he would try to get him off his game. And he looked at uh, uh, Hank Aaron and he said, Hey Henry, don't you know you're holding your bat wrong? Um, Hank Aaron didn't say anything, didn't look his way. He said, yeah, you're supposed to hold it so that you can read the trademark on it. Well, it wasn't long after that. In the same at bat, actually, Hank Aaron pulled a ball over the left field wall and rounded all four bases. He had hit a home run. As he stepped on home plate, he looked at Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra looked at him. Yogi, uh, it was at this moment that Hank looked at him and said, I didn't come up here to read. I'm afraid, Christian, what we often do is we get distracted from the ultimate goal. Our, our eyes and our mind get off the prize that is set before us for running the course faithfully to please God and to glorify Him in every pursuit of our life. But we get distracted and oftentimes we find ourselves reading everything other than what we ought to be reading or focusing on everything else but what we ought to be focusing on. They had been drawn away by their many pleasures and God said, you don't even notice it. What a shame if Jesus took a backseat to anything in our life. Amen. And what would be even worse is if we thought we were okay. If we had gotten so far from God that He was not even able to speak to us in a sermon or in our daily devotion. And, and He was not even able to let us know that we were so far from Him. He compares them here And the first picture is of an animal in the desert. Secondly... He says, they're like a disgraced thief. Verse 26, as the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets. He says, you you know what you're like? You're like a thief that is caught red-handed. When I was, uh, uh, there was this one time I was summoned for jury duty. And uh, everybody I talked to said, there's no way they'll allow a Baptist preacher to be on any jury in this county. And so I said, praise the Lord, good, I won't be off work long, that's good. So I went down there at 9 o'clock. There were about 260 of us, I believe, in the room. And uh, the very first name they called, guess who it was? This guy. This guy. Andrew Wolfenbarger, please go stand along the wall. Uh, So I met the cut of 60 out of 260. I understand those odds are not great, but I was definitely number one in the whole deal. Everybody laughed at me because when my name got called, I stood up and said, oh, great. And everybody laughed because they saw my zeal for serving in our judicial system. And uh, um I knew the entire time that I was not going to be selected for the actual jury, so I was really just wasting my day. The good news is, it was actually an increase in pay from what I get paid from the church. So that was good. I think $6 a day. I was was excited about that. No, I'm just playing. Uh, But uh, I sat there the entire day. They were asking these questions. I actually was very intrigued on everything that they were saying. And apparently, and the, the case was long over now, but apparently uh, there was a man who was caught bringing a TV out of a home. And uh, he was caught burglary of a habitation. And, and I suppose, since he was having a trial, he pled not guilty. And they were asking us all sorts of questions. Uh, you know, can you consider the minimum uh, uh, sentence? Can you consider the maximum sentence? And to be honest with you, I was like, I can consider anything that will get me out of here, amen. But either way, I had to sit there all day and listen to this uh, this trial's uh, details and whatnot. And the whole time, here's what I was imagining. I wonder what that dude's face looked like when he got caught. I wonder if he dropped the TV at that point. I wonder if at that moment what went through his mind was, hmm, probably should have been doing something else today. You see, the Bible here paints a picture that uh, Israel would get caught red-handed. Visitors would hear about the glory of God and would travel miles and miles to see God being worshipped. Only to find He was worshipped at every feast and every occasion that was asked to be held. And then people would abandon Him and go serve their own idols and gods. They would be ashamed of it one day. He not only says that they would be like disgraced thief, but I want you to notice this. There would be a popular betrayal in verse 26. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel. Notice, they, their kings, their princes. Notice first of all that it is their politicians that betrayed God. Their king, if you'll remember the whole deal with Israel, God never in, uh, asked for them to have a king. He wanted to be their king. That they would serve God and he would be the king. But they they requested that he would give them one and God answered their request. And now the Bible says years and years and years later, God's fears have come true. It's so easy to turn the heart of a man. Right. And now he says, look, I never wanted to have a king, and now look at your king. Every one of them are wicked. Every one of them seek their own gods. Not one of them consult me. Their politicians were crooked. You know, in America, our politicians might be a little crooked. And I'll tell you this, it it, it really breaks my heart. I'm not being funny here. It breaks my heart that I don't know who to trust. And, and used to, there was this idea that as long as it was your party, they were the trustworthy one. Frankly, I don't know. That's right. I don't know who's telling the truth. Every side looks like they're neck deep in mud. And I'm just telling you, I am discouraged as an American. Man. Our politicians are crooked. But notice what's next in that verse. It says, your priests and your prophets. Yeah. It's not that their politicians were crooked only. Their preachers were. Certainly I would say that God is displeased with our government. But it has to pale in comparison how heartbroken he must be over the preachers in this nation. Preachers Preachers that are so interested in making another dollar... That they will abandon the gospel message only to pass out holy water or, or to send someone a prayer cloth only to get a donation back. What a farce they are. And look how far we've come as Americans when we used to have men with a backbone ready to preach the gospel. And I may not have agreed with every single major preacher's doctrinal stance throughout the course of time. But I can tell you there were some great men with faith that with a heart of compassion preached the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm thankful for those men. And now turn on TBN one evening and see how much you hear. You go look for spiritual Christian preachers, and every one of them look like they're women. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I were joking. That's right. You turn on a Christian television show, you see more skinny jeans than you do if you turn on yoga. Yeah. Where have we come, America? I and mean, if you wear skinny jeans, I'm sorry. <laughs> But look, our preachers are the reason our nation is where it is. Jeremiah looks at them and says, Oh, it's not just your kings and your princes. It's your priests and your prophets. They've turned their back on the living God turn their face to other things and other pursuits and other things that were important to them. They've turned their back on me. Preachers without God's power. I read a study one time out of a preacher's conference where over a thousand preachers were. Eighty percent of those preachers said that they only read their Bible when studying for a sermon. You know what we have in America? A bunch of men with big churches. A bunch of men with oratory ability. We have a bunch of men with great charisma and can carry on a conversation. But we have a bunch of men without the power of God on their life. And a preacher without the power of God is just someone who takes up an hour of your time. A preacher whose daily life is not lived in pursuit of getting something from God that he might be able to pass to the flock. If your preacher's not like that, you're wasting your time. I'm afraid to say, if we were to be able to go around and look at all the churches, our preachers are not cutting it. And our politicians are not cutting it. But thirdly, the people weren't either. Look, don't miss this. Verse number 26. The first guilty party mentioned is not the preachers. The first guilty party is not the politicians. You know what it says? They. They. Each Israelite stood guilty upon the decisions that they had individually made. They were not committed to God the way they needed to be committed to Him. They were like a disgraced thief who one day would be caught because of their action. And they would be guilty and stand guilty before God. The people would. Look, if you're in the wrong church, find the right one. Amen. If, 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 if you think this country is starving politically, maybe you ought to get involved in politics. But... But I want you to know that when Israel's picture was broken, it was not just at the fault of the preachers and the pulpits. It was not at the fault of the politicians and the polls. It was the the fault of the people. And they stood guilty before God. There was a popular betrayal of God. It became the general consensus to have an idol out back. What a shame. The popular betrayal, and I want you to notice this, we're done, we're a little ahead of time, but we'll, we won't be long. Not only would there be a popular betrayal, but there would come a pathetic begging. Verse number 27. Saying to stock, thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me and not their face. Notice this. But in the time of their trouble, They will arise. And they will say, Arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made? Let them arise if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. God says there would come a time in Israel's uh, future where things would begin to go downhill And they would realize like the disgraced thief, we are guilty before God. And we have betrayed everything that he's asked us to do. We're not where we need to be. This time was coming. And God says, when that day comes, I'll ask you where are your gods? I'll say to you, what have you been doing all this time? Spending time with them. I want you to take your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1 quickly. Proverbs chapter number 1. This is not the only time in Scripture where God turns a deaf ear to those who are not faithful to Him. Proverbs 1, verse 22, the Bible says, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and the fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. Uh, I will make known my words unto you. See, there's God's invitation of grace. Grace. The Bible says, Because I have called, and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye said it not, all my counsel, with none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me. But I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they that hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of the fools shall destroy them. What happens? Well, God tells them. I gave you the opportunity. I've been gracious. I've been long-suffering. And and can I just say this here? It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And Israel of all people in the world have felt God's long-suffering goodness over and over and over again. But God says, there's coming a day where, where your enemies are going to overtake you. Where you'll stand guilty and you'll realize that the stone that you've been praying to is no better than the enemy you can throw it at. You're right. The grove that you've been worshiping in is easily burnt and the God that is abiding in it is nowhere to be found. There's coming a day in your future Israel where you'll arise and say, Save us! But I will not hear. I will not be there for you. You know... Our nation is to the point where we have many faithful Christians like you. We're in this church tonight. We're trying to hear from God. You knew what subject matter was going to be preached. And for those of you that didn't, I'm sorry. You showed up on the wrong night, I suppose. But but you, some of you are just gluttons for punishment. And you came knowing I was going to be preaching on a broken nation. We have a lot of great people in this nation, but we have a lot of wicked ones, don't we? Amen. We have a nation, by and large, that's turning their back on God. We have churches that are adopting new policies so that uh, illicit sins might be accepted within the congregation of the church. What a shame, where we've come as America. And I just wonder when the day's going to come where God says, you're going to pray for me, but I'm not going to be there. You're going to ask for revival, but I won't be there to send it to you. You're going to ask for my spirit to be poured out. I'm not going to be there to give it because I will not hear you. Christian, you know what the Bible says about God and our prayers? Our prayers are only as good as our walk. Listen to me. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The Bible says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord. But the prayer of the righteous is sweet. Look, our prayer is only as valid as our walk. God will only hear us as good as our walk is. And I'm afraid there's going to be a lot of Christians one day when America goes through another 9-11... When America goes through another national catastrophe, when America goes through another financial crisis, we're going to arise and say, God save us! But He's not going to be there. You know why? Because of our walk. We could go tonight, and we could visit a Hindu temple where people ring a bell to get their God's attention. We could visit the Philippines and see a group of Catholic people who are willing to beat themselves in hopes of gaining their God's pleasure. They'll take razor blades, cut their back. They'll they'll, they'll take whips and whip themselves. They'll walk around with crosses on their back in hopes that God might hear them. We could go tonight and, and we could visit in Jerusalem a group of thousands of people at the bottom of a retaining wall. It used to be the west retaining wall of the temple. The second one, not even the one Solomon built. They'd be standing there praying to it, placing pieces of paper with their prayers written on it in hopes of catching God's ear. And yet we would look at that and say, what a foolish exercise. You don't have to go to a wall. You don't have to beat yourself. You don't have to ring any bells for God to hear you. And we look at them as if they're foolish. But... You know what's even more foolish than that? Is a Christian who thinks they can live how they want to, and when it's time to arise and say, God save us, think that God will be there. At that point, who's the fool? Is it the confused Hindu man who's ringing a bell for a God that does not exist, or is it the Christian who has the fountain of living waters and is not willing to live for Him? America has a picture of a broken nation written all over it. And I hope that maybe as we as Christians look at our nation and evaluate the current state of it. Realizing it's not where it needs to be. I pray that we would not put the blinders on and say, oh yeah, everything's fine here. But I pray that we would live the life that God can answer prayers for.